Tonight we proved that when the people rise up and stand together, we can beat the special interests. Yes, they did. In Wisconsin. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Yep. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Today it is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, on Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on your internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, and I think... This may actually qualify as a thrilling one for a pleasant change. Yay. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, That, of course, is our thrilled producer, Desi Doyen. (laughs) How are you, Des? I'm thrilled. All right, well, let's start here. In a special election this past January, a Democrat won a long-held Republican seat in the Wisconsin State Senate in a district that had gone to Donald Trump by like 20 points back in 2016. Last week, we discussed how Wisconsin's Governor Scott Walker had been so freaked out by that loss, after which he went on a Twitter rampage declaring the loss a wake-up call, a wake-up call. He was so freaked out by it that he refused to call special elections to fill two other state legislative seats in uh, deeply red areas of Wisconsin, which had become vacant after Walker appointed those two legislators to his own administration. Walker was recently ordered last week by a judge, actually I think two weeks ago now, a judge, a judge that he had appointed, by the way, he was ordered by that judge to schedule those two special elections, but he and the Republican majority state legislature tried instead to call a special session of the legislature in order to actually change the state law on special elections rather than call these two special elections that the court had ordered. Two other state judges excoriated Walker and the Republicans for trying to avoid the rule of law and the court orders uh, last week. So Walker was finally forced late last week to schedule those two special elections for this June, whether he wanted to or not. And today, 
Following spring state and local elections in Wisconsin on Tuesday, we have yet another reminder about why Badger State Republicans are so desperate to avoid any elections these days for as long as they can. Rebecca Dallet trounced Michael Skrenick on Tuesday for a 10-year term on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, shrinking the court's conservative majority and giving Democrats a jolt of energy heading into the fall elections, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It marked the first time in 23 years that a liberal candidate who wasn't an incumbent won a seat on the high court. In her victory speech, Dallet, a Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge, attributed her win to Wisconsin voters standing up to special interests. Friends, I ran with two things in mind. We need to restore independence to the judiciary, and we have to put Wisconsin values front and center. And that's what I've talked about. And that's what I've talked about throughout the entire campaign. Special interests definitely are having their impact, and it's on both sides of the aisle. That's why I pledged I will recuse myself if any of those special interests that supported me appear before me. Tonight we proved that when the people rise up and stand together, we can beat the special interests. <laughs> We beat the NRA, and we beat the millions of dollars that were spent on this race flooding into our state. And it's by taking these strong stands that we can restore the reputation and the independence of our judicial branch. Well, that's got to be scary for Wisconsin Republicans. Dallas' sizable victory margin alarmed Republican Governor Scott Walker enough that he posted a series of messages on Twitter once again, warning that he this time could be the victim of a, quote, blue wave this fall. With 100% of the wards reporting, Dallet defeated Skrenick by a full 12 points, 56 to 44, according to the unofficial returns. Dallas' win will mean six of the court's justices will now be women. Only one other state, Washington state, has that many women on its high court. But in percentage terms, Wisconsin will now have the highest representation uh, of women uh, because Wisconsin's court has a total of seven seats. Washington's has nine. Dallas was uh, endorsed by the court's two other liberals. While most of the conservatives on the court backed Skrenick, she also secured the endorsements of Vice President Joe Biden, former Attorney General Eric Holden, Holder, uh, U.S. Uh, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. And as is uh, the case these days, especially in Wisconsin, it drew outside spending that was expected to exceed $2 million. Skrenick, for his part, was endorsed by Walker, by GOP party money that uh, made up nearly half of his fundraising. And both the National Rifle Association and Wisconsin's powerful Manufacturing and Commerce Association spent big for him as well. But it was not enough to overcome yet another sign of what could I emphasize could portend a blue wave for Democrats in this year's crucial midterm elections. If Walker thought a small little Senate district up in the northwestern part of the state going Democratic for the first time since 1995 was a wake up call, said Wisconsin Democratic operative Scott Ross, referring to that special election 
back in January that flipped a long-held GOP seat from red to blue. Uh, and freaked out Scott Walker in the bargain. If uh, if he thought that was a wake-up call, said Ross, this would be a Category 8 hurricane. Joining us now is journalist and occasional political meteorologist John Nichols. He is Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive, and in these times he's associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times, and the author of many books on progressive politics, his latest is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. I am happy to welcome Wisconsin's favorite son back to the broadcast. Oh, Mr. Nichols, welcome, sir. Hey, sir. It's, it's an honor to be with you. And I must say, it's especially nice to be talking about something good happening in Wisconsin. Right. Rather than our many complex and sad stories. In fact, uh, yeah. a friend of mine and I were calculating last night that last night was the first genuinely good election night for mm. Wisconsin progressives since 2012. Well, uh, including that January win, because that was that was a big deal in that January. That was a great deal, but you understand that was one district, right? You know, that was one. You know, thirty third of the state, right? Right. It was a small portion, and it was great, and people took it very seriously. But you know as well as I, Brad, that the dynamics of a particular district, mm -hmm. a good candidate, you know, some unique factors, uh, can can be, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, you have to be a little careful extrapolating from that. Right. But when you've got a night where the governor's hand-picked candidate, mm -hmm. and I would emphasize this Skrennick guy, he was the governor's, he, he represented the Walker administration's position in cases on Walker's anti-labor legislation, yeah. as well as the Republican gerrymandering of the state legislature. So, I mean, this isn't just some conservative judge mm -hmm. picked out of the mix. This is literally a point man for much of Walker's agenda. When that guy gets beat overwhelmingly in a race, where he had all the traditional pieces of the Republican puzzle put together, mm -hmm. the NRA, the corporate types, the anti-choice types, and then, parallel to that, less well covered nationally, when the governor's proposal to eliminate the elected state office of state treasurer, right. which over oversees a $1.2 billion trust fund for public education and public schools, and 77,000 square miles of public lands in the state, with his proposal to eliminate that office is defeated 62-38 yep. by people who did not want to give him more power. You combine that, that's, that's not a bad night. No, that is not a bad night. And I was going to uh, say to you, uh, you know, don't you dare get my listeners excited here unless there's really something <laughs> that they should be excited about. But it, it certainly sounds like it should. I mean, going into this, I was I was looking at this. Uh, John, you and I have covered so many of these Wisconsin oh, yeah. Supreme Court races that look like Democrats uh, or the liberals or the progressives, whatever you want to call them, had a chance. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't work out. Uh, this was quite the opposite. Let me uh, get your response, John Nichols, to uh, Scott Walker's panicked tweets uh, after this election on Tuesday night. He said, tonight's results 
show, we are at risk of a blue wave in Wisconsin. The far left is driven by anger and hatred. And he added in a second tweet, big government special interests flooded Wisconsin with distorted facts and misinformation. Next, they'll target me and work to undo our bold reforms. Of course, Walker is himself on the ballot this November for re-election. Your response uh, from from the uh, angry and hatred-filled far left, John Nichols. (laughs) Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Right? I mean, that guy packs a lot into it. Yes, he does. Uh, almost as much as his president, Donald Trump. Right. Um, <laughs> just, but here's the deal. First and foremost, um, I think it's quite remarkable that a Republican politician is using the term blue wave. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I don't usually see that on conservative and Republican social media. Hashtag, usually, hashtag blue wave. He even used. Blue wave. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so it's very interesting. And what that tells you, what I would suggest to you is that this guy is really obsessing about this stuff. You know, he knows the language of the other side. Mm-hmm. He knows the language of, you know, what, what you know, the Daily Coast folks are talking about. Mm-hmm. And it, it suggests he's spending a lot of time on this. And there's a reason for that. Just as you saw with his Twitter storm back in January, now again reacting to this night so overwhelmingly. Um, one of the most disciplined political figures in the United States, a guy who really, by any measure, mm-hmm. uh, keeps his calm through some of the toughest political fights you've seen, appears to be losing it. Yep. And he appears to be freaked out by election results that he can't control. And for this guy, remember, he has been on something of a winning streak for quite a long time. Uh, Obviously, his presidential race crashed and burned. But in Wisconsin, he's known how to game this thing, to put the pieces together. And I think what you're seeing here is someone who, because of the changing national dynamics and the changing state dynamics, no longer knows how to put the pieces together. And so he's, A, you know, scared about a blue wave, B, talking about the far left and all this scary stuff. You know, the fact of the matter is, that the woman who won the Supreme Court seat, Rebecca Dowett, mm-hmm. she was the moderate candidate in the primary. There really was a lefty running. Really? Uh, who got, yeah, guy named Tim Burns, an extremely honorable, very, very good lawyer, mm-hmm. um, who got about you know 20% of the vote but didn't win the primary. Dowett came in second, and then the Skrennick came in first. And, and so uh, throughout the race, Dowett positioned herself as the experienced judge who wanted to restore integrity and independence to the high court. That did not mean that she wasn't outspoken, and we should talk a little about some of that because it's very important. Mm -hmm. But what it does mean is that to position her as the far left, this is a woman who ran with the support of, you know, dozens and dozens of county judges from across the state that was backed by county sheriffs and, you know, I mean... In newspapers around the state, she was hardly the far left. And, and 
Yeah. Well, yeah, no, that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, actually, I want to get into, uh, in, in a second, this idea of these elections for judges at all, because I think it drives me crazy. But before I get to that, <laughs> uh, let, let me talk about this. Her victory sort of only narrows the uh, conservative, so-called conservative control of the uh, Wisconsin State Supreme Court from five to two, now down to four to three. Um, so will it have any practical effects, as you see it, John, on on a court that has in recent years really become a rubber stamp in no small part for some of Scott Walker's most actual far-right, radical, right-wing policies, which, uh, by the way, as you noted, Dalit's opponent, Skrennick, was instrumental in supporting. So, But they still don't have the uh, progressives, the liberals still don't have a, a, a majority there. So will we yet see any changes to the actual court with her election? You could see some individual changes. Um, there are, as you point out, four identifiable conservatives. And, you know, by and large, they, they've been elected with support from the kind of classic conservative coalition in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty loyal to it. They're, they're relatively loyal to Walker on, on things. They're especially loyal to some of these business interests, the predictable mm-hmm. money and politics kind of stuff. But they are individuals. And, um, and so... Remember, this is the, the fear people always have about the courts, is that somebody you think is predictable may not be. Mm-hmm. And you are never going to get two of them to swing. But the possibility of getting one of them to swing on, you know, some sort of common decency, basic humanity issue. Right. Yeah, there, there's possibilities there, and, and you shouldn't underestimate that. And it's but, a court that you have uh, six out of seven of the, of the justices are now women. Well, there are, and that may be a factor in some areas, although, you know, many of the women are quite socially conservative as well. Mm-hmm. But one thing is, this is why a side issue in this race that wasn't much talked about beyond the kind of, you know, deep recesses of Wisconsin politics is a big deal. That is the issue of recusal. The question of, should members of the court mm-hmm. refuse to rule in cases where uh, one party to the case is one of their major backers? is somebody they've been closely aligned with politically. And uh, Dallet ran on that. She said yeah. she personally would recuse from cases involving her, you know, most prominent supporters. Yep. Uh, that was a big deal. But she also now creates this pressure on the justices. And so I do think there's, there are possibilities for some different dynamics there. Remember, if, one of the, if two of the conservatives were to recuse, right? Right. Uh, Suddenly, you have a liberal majority. If one of the conservatives recuses, you get a tie, and that sends it back to the appellate courts. In Wisconsin, the appellate courts are more liberal than the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of dynamics that are worth noting. She had, but, yeah. But I'm just going to put all that aside and tell you it's still a conservative court. What's important is that now, instead of having to pick up two seats to bring it back to a, a progressive or at least mainstream majority, mm-hmm. you only need one. Yep. That's a big deal. Secondly, this happened in the spring of one of the most volatile election years in the country. The first statewide race that really pitted left against right in this kind of way in the country in 2018. And the progressives won, and they didn't win by a little. They won because of a maximized, dramatic turnout of voters. And so in many ways, rather than looking at the internal court dynamics, one of the important things to look at is just what this signals about 
you know, kind of where our electoral zeitgeist is. Is is this a case where uh, John Nichols, where you think she would have won uh, because she's such a great candidate? Michael Skrennick was so terrible, or can this be chalked up directly to the anti-Trump, uh, anti-Republican blue wave that uh, is now moving through Wisconsin, as you see it? Yeah, I think it's about twenty percent, maybe thirty percent, great candidate. Uh, Dallet was a remarkably skilled and disciplined candidate. Uh, everybody noticed it. She worked very, very hard. And she was, you know, what you need to be in politics, charming. You, Mother of three kids, when she talked about gun violence, she mm-hmm. spoke about it in personal uh, you know, ways. It was very, very effective. Somebody who really worked the state well. She's a good candidate. About 30%, I'd give you there. In her... About 70%. Yeah. Oh, go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. 70%. About, about 70% was the blue wave stuff. And the reason I say that is the guy that Dallas replacing won 10 years ago, and he, he was such a horrible, indefensibly awful candidate and jurist. And he beat, like, a, a remarkably well-regarded, uh, you know, veteran mm-hmm. state jurist. So, no, I, there's a lot of evidence that being a good candidate, being a good judge... You know, in this political process, is sort of you know lavished in money, right? And you know, and where the where the Republicans, frankly, and the conservatives had an incredibly well-oiled machine, uh, they historically have been able to elect incredibly unappealing contenders to mm. the high court. And Skrennick definitely fit into that category, but he he was much better than the guy he's trying to replace. Interesting. Uh, in her in her victory speech, uh, you had mentioned this recusal. I wanted to ask you about this. She had, of course, decried special interests, money on both sides, she said. She repeated mm-hmm. her vow to recuse mm-hmm. herself from cases that involve groups that supported her. Now, doesn't that, A, put the court at, at, at a disadvantage if she remo- removes herself from cases uh, involving groups that supported her and... Uh, one of the groups who spent against her big was the NRA. Uh, you know, does that mean sh- that she should now also recuse herself from cases that involve the NRA in Wisconsin? If she's going to take herself out of those, you know, cases that w- where the group supported her, shouldn't she also take her out, uh, herself out uh, with groups? That is, that, the, yeah. that is the actually absurd argument that some of the conservatives made. Is, is it absurd? Said, is it really? Well, I'll tell you why it's absurd. I'll tell you why it's absurd. Yeah. If I refuse money from you, yeah, does that make me beholden to you? Or does that make me beholden to those that don't like you? No. She said, I'm not going to take their money. I don't believe that, that we should. Now, that's, take, that's expressing a opinion. She clearly did that. But there, she did not take money from the, the NRA. Now, here's the interesting no, thing. but they Brennan but they spent money they spent money on her if she has a case even if it's just the appearance of uh, conflict of interest she knows that uh, the NRA is in court and they spent uh, you know millions of dollars to keep her from becoming elected I mean I'm not trying to go after Dallas no, no, here specifically but it, no. it, it all comes down to the point I raised earlier that I, I'm troubled by, you know, these are ostensibly nonpartisan races, but clearly you've got, you know, one side uh, supported by Democrats, the other side supported by Republicans. And what we end up with is, uh, you know, I think a court 
whether it's the progressives or the conservatives uh, who are basically fighting for their own special interests because of these uh, because they're forced to run for elections. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. In fact, this is one of the reasons why, you know, if you're going to have an elected judiciary, you have to have publicly financed elections with, mm-hmm. you know, real campaign finance control. Right. So luckily, the U.S. Supreme Court has, has ripped that reality apart. But where you're getting at is a legitimate point. Here's the way that recusal has historically worked, you know, a good recusal system. Mm-hmm. And that is that somebody who has expressed an opinion on a matter, right, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to recuse. Right. If you said, well, my feelings are this. And when you're saying, I'm not going to take money from these people, I, I do believe you can have sensible gun control. That's expressing an opinion. There's no doubt of that. But that's very, very different than having a group spend you know, millions of dollars mm-hmm. uh, to keep you from being on the court. Mm-hmm. Or and, and here's where the subtlety comes in. It, just take a look at what Dowett said. Dowett said... She favors gun ownership. She thinks people have a right to own guns. Uh, she was very blunt about her, you know, sympathy for people who are hunters and things like that. She just said, you know, there are certain places where it seems to be constitutional to do some sensible gun controls. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the position she took. That's what she herself said. The fact that somebody would attack her for that doesn't mean... She shouldn't have to recuse for expressing her opinion. No, but they now, are spending money, lots of money yeah, yeah. against her. Well, there's no doubt of that. And But you realize that if, if we started to set that standard, you would end up having everybody have to recuse from everything, right? You'd always find somebody that would spend a dollar here, ten dollars there, a thousand dollars there. And so it, I agree with you. I'm on your side of this argument. But in the practical reality of where the courts are, mm-hmm. if you set a basic recusal standard that, you know, is is rooted in, you know, where it's it's very clear and reasonable people can determine that there was an effort to by by one of the parties to tip the balance, then um, then that's a point at which recusal becomes appropriate. And the new recusal rules in Wisconsin that Dallas supported actually have money figures and and you mm-hmm. know structural legal definitions for this and if some group supporting her or even opposing her in the in the right context you know hit those limits she should recuse you're right well um, and i'm really but, uh, it's it's the larger picture uh that i'm looking at john i, I it, you know it's not that i'm saying oh she should recuse herself from nra cases but you know if she's going to do it on one side it feels like she should do it on the other but the larger issue to me is again Supreme Court justices, uh, really any judges running for elections. I mean, she is, you and I would both agree she espouses some great progressive views uh, in her Mm -hmm. victory speech, for example, on Tuesday. Let me play a a very quick clip here. It sounded uh, to my ears more like a politician than a jurist. Let me just play a clip here. We not only won this race tonight, we've lifted up the issues that matter and that put us on firm ground for the future. I have a few more months on the Milwaukee County bench before I head over to Madison. And as a local county judge, I know we need to keep our community safe from violent crime, and that means holding the worst perpetrators accountable. 
But more than that, it means addressing the root causes of crime. We need to address the drug crisis as a public health issue. We need to confront racial bias in our criminal justice system. And we have to speak out when our civil justice system is undermined. We have to address the tremendous impact on our community from mass incarceration and brutality from the authorities. Now, of course, I am in favor of all of those things, as I suspect you are, John Nichols. But uh, the fact that all of, you know, that that she's making speeches like that, all of these groups and politicians uh, get behind one or the other candidate. Doesn't all of this underscore she sounds like a great politician, but doesn't it sound like the idea that, you know, the election of judges is just a terrible idea that needs to end? She's a judge here, not a not a, a political candidate for office. Well, I'm afraid this is where you and I, who are in agreement on almost every issue, mm-hmm. uh, may differ. I, having been born and raised in Wisconsin, and I'm the son of a of a prosecutor and a county court commissioner, and kind of grew up in the courthouse in mm-hmm. Wisconsin. I just grew up, you know, in the world of elected judges, and um, and there's an old Wisconsin tradition that or argument that is that. The judiciary has to be accountable. It can't just be appointed by governors or even by blue-ribbon panels. Uh, that ultimately, it, there should be the ability of the people to remove a judge or to, to put somebody on the bench. That's an that's a old Wisconsin progressive value uh, that runs deep in the state. Now, that comes into profound conflict with money and politics. And I think that I think judges have a right, and I would argue it's fine for judges to express uh, their broad sentiment, you know, the things that they think mm-hmm. are important, uh, that they want to address, things that they, they're concerned about. I don't have a problem with that because I, I don't really like the idea of judges as you know, high priests who are cloistered away and we don't really know, you know what they think or where they stand. So I'm not too bothered by people expressing sentiment. Uh, what I am bothered by is the possibility, in fact, I think because of my views about money and politics, the probability that a, a judge who might actually have good values and good ideals and, and some good sentiments could be warped in their position by the infusion of tremendous amounts of money into mm-hmm. a campaign on their behalf or, or you know, in some other way to influence the election. So I, I do think I make a distinction between some of the money and politics issues and some of the expression of sentiments, expression of opinion issues. And you may, you might end up on a different side of that, and I understand. But, you know, historically in Wisconsin, we had a system where you had people that you understood to be conservative judges, and you had people that you understood to be liberal judges. And, you know, that was, that mm-hmm. was, happened all the time. But this is really, really different, what's going on now. And, and it is a bigger problem. And that is that now you have judges who, there's an awful lot of evidence that they are aligned to a political project, mm-hmm. i.e. that you know, their conservatism or liberalism is really secondary to their commitment to certain individuals and to certain political, you know, political parties or political groupings. And, and that's where the problem comes in. And believe me, 
I know that this is a is a is a nuanced and frankly rather deep argument uh, that people end up on on many sides of. But where the the challenge is in Wisconsin uh, is in in the money and politics reality. The fact of the matter is the historic model for elections in Wisconsin was that candidates for judge raised a reasonable amount of money and then they went out and spoke a lot and they debated and they they talked. That's not what's happening now. Now what's happening is that you're right. You do have these essentially partisan contests yep. that are massively warped by money. And so Wisconsin's going to have, like many states, and believe me, this is not just a Wisconsin phenomenon. Right. Uh, Wisconsin and other states are going to have to wrestle, as California is too. Remember, California, you have a weird system where somebody gets appointed, but then they have to be confirmed by the people. A retention right? elect. Hey, leave California out of this, John. This is not. Uh... And, then, and they spend like unimaginable amounts of money on elections. Well, they do. We're, we we have there is impeachment, there is retention elections, and your your argument for you know publicly funded elections. I think that would take a lot of the the concerns out of out of this. We're, we'll have to leave this because I'm running ridiculously yeah. long at this point, John. Uh, folks can drop me an email if you have thoughts on this. Bradcast at bradblog.com. John, let me get one quick thought from you before we go here. Uh, one of the Democratic challengers to. Republican uh, U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan of Wisconsin was raising money immediately off the Dalit win on Tuesday night. That would be Randy Bryce. He called the uh, win, quote, a rallying cry for working folks. I'm going to need you to do this in about 15 or 20 seconds. But is there any actual chance that Paul Ryan could actually lose? And by the way, what are the chances that he decides to quit rather than, than run this November? Number one, the chance he could lose increasingly good. Um, if indeed it's a blue wave election, his district is gerrymandered in his favor, but it's not so gerrymandered that a blue wave could not uh, push him out. Mm. He's in. He's really in a bad place. He's got tons of money, but he's in, it, it, people are pretty up in arms about him. Secondly, the chance that he'll quit. I, I have known Paul for a long time. I, I really doubt that he'll quit because he's an incredibly loyal Republican. And if he were to step down now as the Speaker of the House and say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not going to run, mm-hmm. I think the impact on the party would be so devastating that a bad year could turn dramatically worse. So I think his party loyalty may be what keeps him running this year. I will look forward to having you back when you are proven either right or wrong on either of those <laughs> predictions. John Nichols, check out his work, as always, at thenation.com and uh, Wisconsin's Capital Times. Uh, and uh, also uh, follow uh, The Uprising as it continues on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. Oh, and buy his book, Horseman of the Trumpocalypse. John, always great to talk to you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again very soon in the near future. You're great, Brad. Thanks a lot. Thank you, brother. Okay, we're running late, so quick break, and we are back with more election news way up north in Alaska. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Way up north, north to Alaska. Way up north, north to Alaska. North.
Alaska Go north for Russia's own Yep. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Des, we were talking to John Nichols over the break there, um, he, and he wanted to underscore, uh, we didn't get to spend much time on it, but this proposi- this ballot proposition that was soundly, de- hugely defeated Yes, it sounded like Wisconsin. a big deal. It was a big deal. This was Scott Walker's attempt to do away with the statewide office of the treasurer. And basically, it was a huge power grab for the executive office, for Scott Walker. And uh, John says that he thought that, you know, that Walker was talking about this thing as if it was a done deal, as if it was going to pass and uh, do away with the state treasurer. And instead, that measure got absolutely trounced, something like, what was it, 60, he said, 30 I think or 62 something? 62 yeah. to 38 or something yeah. incredible, which is very important because of the disposition of Wisconsin's public lands and, of course, yeah. funding for public education. Yeah. So uh, a lot of big news, a lot of good news for uh, for certainly for Democrats in Wisconsin as the uh, blue wave continues to build and also good news way up north in Alaska. Initial results in Anchorage's local election on Tuesday night showed a majority of voters rejecting a contentious ballot initiative to regulate restrooms, locker rooms and intimate facilities by sex at birth instead of gender identity after what was one of the most expensive campaigns in city election history, according to the Anchorage Daily News. This was Proposition 1 in Anchorage, which would have rolled back legal protection for transgender people from a a city non-discrimination law that has been in in effect without problem for more than two years. But that appears to have been that effort appears to have been defeated. The results could change in the coming days. Uh, There are still uh, several about 16,000 votes that are still out. But as of uh, Tuesday night, about 54 percent of the ballots counted were no votes on that Proposition 1 compared to 46 percent in favor. Uh, this, uh, As I say, the numbers could still change, but it's looking very good for the folks who support freedom and oppose hatred and bigotry. Uh, even up in so-called very red Alaska. I'm glad to hear that. Hey, when the people vote, the people win. Katie Ward, campaign manager for the Fair Anchorage campaign, which had opposed Prop 1, said the Anchorage transgender community has stepped up and led this campaign in an amazing, powerful way. She said, while we don't have all the results tonight, we are cautiously optimistic in uh, spending Since elections seem to be all about spending these days, the fair election, uh, I'm sorry, the fair Anchorage campaign dwarfed its opponents. Finance reports show that the yes on one protect our privacy campaign, which is a local version of what right wingers have been describing nationally as a bathroom bill. um, That was uh, coordinated by the group Alaska Family Action. They spent about $123,000 on the effort as of late March, while Fair Anchorage was apparently able to raise and spend at least $800,000 in opposition to this scheme that would have gutted the city's non-discrimination law. So um, good news. 
good news up in Anchorage. Yeah, but it's it's just really insane that this much money gets spent to try yep. to deprive people of their rights. It's it's insane that this is where we are in 2018. Yep, that is where we are in 2018. I'm sorry to say. Um, here's also where we are. The uh, I mentioned last week that the Missouri Republicans, the, the, a, at least a Missouri Republican in the state Senate, was proposing a bill uh, to move away from the 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that are used in some of the state's largest counties, for example, in St. Louis County, in Kansas City. Uh, the bill uh, w- would replace those systems with hand-marked paper ballots, not an unverifiable computer-marked paper ballot, which is seems to be all the rage now these days, uh, like the one that Georgia was attempting to move to last week before that measure was killed by election integrity and transparency uh, champions uh, in the state. But um, this uh, Missouri Republican is calling for an actual hand-marked paper ballot system, a you know ballots that are actually verified by the voters, uh, and uh, hand-marked paper ballots are specifically described as such in that legislation. Well, some good news for voters in Missouri while the measure must uh, still be approved in the state Senate, it was overwhelmingly adopted by the Missouri State House. The Missouri Senate is now considering, according to AP, whether to permanently unplug the state's touchscreen machines amid concerns that electronic voting machines might, <laughs> might, <laughs> might, AP, might be susceptible to hackers. That's how AP described it. Might be, who knows, maybe. Maybe, Who can say? Maybe touch uh, 100% unverifiable systems. Maybe they're uh, susceptible. Whatever uh, AP does, they should not look up the Senate hearing testimony of the Department of Homeland Security sh- saying that they are hackable. Don't worry. Apparently, they didn't look up anything. Uh, in any event, uh, I digress because I like AP. Usually, they're quite good. Yes, they are. The, um, the proposal passed the GOP majority House overwhelmingly in a 108 to 31 vote and would require voters to use paper ballots, ballots exclusively. And actually, as that legislation also states, hand marked paper ballots exclusively, no barcoded paper ballots, no computer marked paper ballots other than for disabled voters who choose to use an an assistive device. Machines could still be used. Computers can still be used to count votes under this measure. But systems that only recorded votes electronically would be phased out. They won't be barred. They won't be banned immediately, but they cannot be replaced. And uh, with uh, there's a lot of money now that is being put forward uh, to states all over the country, thanks to Congress, who just uh, allocated about half a billion dollars to new systems. So um, uh, as these older systems are phased out, at least in Missouri, if this measure passes in the Senate, uh, they will, my own old home state, the show me state, uh, would move to handmark paper ballots, period. The bill's sponsor, Republican uh, uh, Representative Paul Kurtman of Washington, Missouri, said the proposal would help ensure, quote, the highest confidence in the integrity of our election system. And he is, this Republican representative, is mostly correct. 
will set aside the issue of the computers that will be counting those hand-marked paper ballots. Uh, but at least voters will have a fighting chance to know that uh, how voters voted, what the intent of the voter actually was, because a hand-marked paper ballot, by its very definition, is verified by the voter. Every county in Missouri already uses at least some paper ballots. About two dozen counties, however, also use electronic voting machines that do not require a paper ballot, according to AP. During a debate on the House floor, Rep, uh, uh, Representative Pat Conway, Democrat of St. Joseph, Missouri, expressed concern that the proposal would force local governments to spend money they might not have. Democratic uh, Representative Doug Beck of St. Louis, who also voted against the proposal, said that he had faith in the electronic machines that what? are used in his district. That's right. The Republicans and the Democrats in Missouri are completely flipped on this issue. And actually, I shouldn't say they're completely flipped because there's a lot of Democrats around the country who are... Uh, who get you know, that, who, who get this, yes. Well, actually, who don't get this. There's a lot of Democrats who don't get this, who are out there fighting for these computer-marked paper ballots, or they think, oh, the voting machines that got me elected are fine, so we don't need to change them. What? They're 100% unverifiable? I don't care. They work to get me into office. That's just fine. Uh, Democratic Representative Beck said, quote, there would have to be a widespread conspiracy going on to rig those machines. Oh, boy. <laughs> right? It's exactly what you've heard Republicans say for years when we brought this up. Um, Beck, again, a Democrat, said the vote tallies in electronic machines are more accurate and produce a paper record, said Beck. Now, in Missouri, the touchscreen systems they have spit out those little uh, paper trails, those computer printed tra paper trails, supposedly of how the voter voted, but they are not necessarily verified by the voter. And, of course, the computers don't use that little paper trail. It is a chimera. It is uh, an illusion to make you think that the computers are going to count it the way the paper trails are, are printed. But no, they, they don't use that paper. They count it any way. The computers count it any way they want. Legislative researchers estimated that reverting to uh, paper ballots would not cost the state government money, but they said that costs to local governments were hard to calculate. For example, the St. Louis County Director of Elections estimated that printing additional paper ballots before the next presidential election would cost almost a quarter of a million dollars. Well, God forbid. God forbid we should spend that and know how much how voters are actually voting. Uh, anyway, um, I in Missouri, go Republicans and Democrats, figure it out. Get your goddamn act together and figure out what the hell you're doing and stop opposing stuff just because it's coming from Republicans in that case. Um, all right, one uh, related story here sent to me by uh, Christian McLaughlin, our uh, station director at the uh, our great affiliate, WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, apparently, the Department of State in Pennsylvania is taking steps to, quote, modernize Pennsylvania's elections by issuing an invitation for bid or IFB 
to voting system firms. Much of Pennsylvania, you'll recall, does use 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, largely across the entire state in Pennsylvania. Um, So now they're looking to uh, get rid of those systems and move to new ones. That is, in theory, a good thing. Acting Secretary of State Robert Torres uh, said that the new requirements for these systems will ensure that our voting systems will provide enhanced standards of resiliency, auditability, and security for Pennsylvania citizens. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? The IFB, uh, the invitation for bid, includes requirements for increased documentation, security, and reporting capabilities. Uh, and requires that all voting systems purchased from February 9 forward must employ a voter verifiable paper ballot or voter verifiable paper record of votes cast by the voter. Not verified by the voter, but verifiable, maybe, if the voter wants to, who knows. Those, of course, are the weasel words that you need to watch for because they will allow computer-marked and or barcoded paper ballots in Pennsylvania and, uh, and elsewhere across the state. Folks, need, listen, folks, people on the ground need to get it. They need to understand. If you see verifiable, that's not what you want. You want verified paper ballots, period. And we need citizens now all over the country to step up here and make sure that any new system, whether it's in a great Keystone state or anywhere else, allow for hand-marked paper ballots. Everyone in all the states now are going to have to do this because Congress has allotted this half a billion dollars to update voting systems around the country and the private vendors are absolutely salivating at this point. They are they are already out like sharks and they are counting on elected officials and election officials and the public to not know the difference between what they call voter marked paper ballots uh, or just paper ballots Uh, which, you know, these voter-marked paper ballots, that is code word for computer-marked paper ballots. If they wanted actual hand-marked paper ballots, they would say hand-marked. But no, they say voter-marked because, oh, just use that touchscreen yourself, voter, and that will uh, print out a ballot that you have marked through the computer touchscreen. So watch out for voter-marked paper ballots, or if they just say paper ballots, because that would allow for unverifiable computer-marked ballots, unverifiable ballot code, uh, uh, barcoded ballots, instead of hand-marked paper ballots. Everyone on deck, all hands on deck, if you will, uh, in Pennsylvania. Thanks for sending that to us, uh, Christian. Greatly appreciated. Uh, and uh, since I can't be everywhere, I can't be in all 50 states, we really need the people to step forward the way they did in Georgia, where they prevented those barcoded ballots just last week. So uh, good news in Georgia. Now we just have to worry about the other 49 states. A uh, quick break, and when we return uh, this week marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at a motel in Memphis. Our our, uh, brief remembrance of that awful night 50 years ago today is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. 
Hey, this is Brad. My thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only one that keeps us here. Thank you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that... Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dan Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Used in shocked city tonight, no one can believe what has happened in just a little over an hour since Dr. Martin Luther King died from an assassin's bullet. King was shot as he stood on the balcony in front of room 306 in the Lorraine Hotel. He was alone. His aides were in the room behind him. Dr. King was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital emergency room. He died at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lives by nonviolence. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom oppressed. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. And it's still appropriate to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. That was Bobby Kennedy, who would himself be assassinated just two months later in 1968, announcing the death of Martin Luther King. 
50 years ago today in Memphis, um, King was fighting not just for racial justice, but was focused on union rights in the uh, in the week that he was killed. And here we are 50 years later, and our uh, our nation is still asking itself what kind of nation we are, what direction we want to move in. Perhaps we received some small answer from yesterday's elections in Anchorage, Alaska, and particularly in Wisconsin, where the Supreme Court candidate who was instrumental in fighting to strip public union rights in Wisconsin back in 2011 was soundly defeated in the state's Supreme Court election by a progressive candidate fighting for the rights of all of us. My thanks to Desi Doyen and our our old friend Tony Sorrentino, who put that uh, montage together some years ago. Yes, yes, we did. And uh, And it still stands today. Yes, it does. Still um, horrifying to hear it today. So thank you guys very much for that. Thank you, Des, for all of your work, as ever, as our producer. My thanks also to our guest today, Wisconsin's own John Nichols of The Nation, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as ever, greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other that we have ever done, you can download them anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you will find us, follow us, and share our uh, shows and everything else far and wide on the Twitters and Facebooks at The Brad Blog. My thanks as ever to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate because you are the ones who keep us on your public airwaves. We don't have those uh, great big corporate supporters like uh, other folks do and like uh, these candidates now do all over the country. We rely on you, our listeners, to keep up this fight for all that is good and right. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Free at last, they answer you now.